This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to episode 108 of Love That Album podcast. Start of 2018, Morris couldn't find a discussion partner for this episode as they were all off lounging by the beach in the Southern Hemisphere or too busy shoveling the snow from their driveways in the Northern Hemisphere. So for this first show of the year, Morris works solo to focus on a pair of fine tribute albums, one in dedication to Brill Building songwriter Doc Pomus. one covering the music of his hero, Richard Thompson. Both albums feature interpretations that are faithful to the original arrangements, as well as some that take risks. Both are certainly worthy of your attention, and Morris will explain why. Eric Reanimator returns for 2018 with a new Album I Love segment and a couple of tribute albums of his own. One for the band Petra, and one for Skip Spence from the band Moby Grape. So if you want to see the bright lights tonight, Get on your Vincent Black Lightning, enjoy the magic moment, and save the last dance for Love That Album. And he pulled around behind And down to Bucks Hill They didn't ride Nobody worries about kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Welcome to 2018. Hope you're surviving the heat or the cold, depending on what hemisphere you're in. My name is Morris. This is episode 108 of Love That Album podcast. If this is your first time listening, welcome on board. Hope that you uh, go through the archives or you continue to listen. Uh, If you've been with us for a long time, thanks for your continued patronage. 
And being the start of the year, I like to ease into it a little bit. I've decided to do a program here just by myself, flying solo, which is not something I really enjoy terribly much. But I wanted to talk about a couple of albums that I wasn't really sure many people out there were that familiar with, but I really wanted to get them across. So here I am talking about a couple of tribute albums. Now, tribute albums, I know, were the bane of some people's lives when the whole concept, I don't know if it originated in the 90s but certainly they came a lot into their own in the 90s when I first started hearing about them and there weren't terribly many that interested me there you know I do have a few in my collection for the purposes of this episode I probably need to define that the tribute album in my mind meant lots of different artists paying tribute to the one band But when I put up a post the other day on the Love That Album Facebook page, my good friend Pat went and put up a few of his own favorite tribute albums, and some of them were the one artist paying tribute to another artist, and that had not even sort of come across my mind and I thought that's a really good idea so I might end up doing another one of these episodes further on down the line where I have a singular artist paying a tribute to another singular artist I have a few ideas in mind for that but for this episode I've picked a couple of albums of multiple artists doing their tribute to a single performer so in the first half of the show it's actually a whole bunch of artists paying tribute to a songwriter and the name of the album is called Till the Night Is Gone, a tribute to Doc Pomus. And I'll explain a little bit about who Doc Pomus was. I mean, I'm sure a lot of you out there are already familiar with his work. But the man's name was not necessarily so familiar unless you were paying attention to the songwriting credits. You'll certainly know a lot of his songs. And the second half of the show, I'll be talking about an album that's a tribute to the songwriter Richard Thompson. And if you've listened to this program long enough, you'll not be surprised that I'm finding any excuse to talk about Richard. The name of the album is called Beat the Retreat, and that came out in 1994. So I'll have some things to say about that and about the artists who pay tribute to his songwriting and his guitar playing and his singing. Really quite a wonderful man. I don't need to preach anymore to the choir. You know what a big fan I am. So I hope you'll enjoy that and stick around. Also, Eric Reanimator will be back this year for his album My Love segment, and he's gone and picked a couple of tribute albums of his own, the two that he's gone and picked to talk about. One's called Never Say Dinosaur, which is a tribute to the band Petra. And that's a little bit of a surprise that he's uh, picked that album, but I'll let him talk about it. And the second album that he's going to be talking about it is called More Ore, a tribute to Skip Spence from Moby Grape. So uh, that'll be coming around in uh, the middle of the program. Hope you stick around and enjoy the program. We'll be back in a couple of minutes to talk about Till the Night Has Gone, a tribute to Doc Pomus. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 108. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash lovethatalbum and start a music-related discussion.
Music and movies. Movies and music. Join Morris, Tim and Bernie every month as they discuss music-related movies. iTunes, Facebook or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com The See Here Podcast. It's a blast. Far out. You can dance. Every dance with the guy who gives you the eye. Let him hold you tight. You can smile. Every smile for the man. Who held your hand beneath the pale moonlight? Welcome back to episode 108 of Love That Album. And the first of the tribute albums I want to talk about in today's show is called Till the Night Is Gone, a tribute to Doc Pomus. Now, this album came out on Rhino Records in 1995. Uh, I've got to confess that the whole idea for this particular episode came as a result of me watching a fantastic documentary on Doc Pomus. The show was called A.K.A. Doc Pomus. Now, he's a songwriter whose material you definitely know, even if the name doesn't necessarily ring a bell. He was born as Jerome Felder in 1925 and unfortunately passed away in March of 1991 from lung cancer. He was born in Brooklyn and contracted polio at an early age. Obviously, this was a hard thing for him and his family to take in, especially as he apparently really loved sports and he was always very active according to the documentary he went everywhere on his crutches but was determined not to be treated any differently to anyone else Uh, his passion became blues music and one of his early heroes was blues singer big joe turner one night in his late teens he snuck out of the house to a blues venue i think in manhattan to watch a band perform when the owner of the venue confronted him as to what he was actually doing there he lied and said that he was a blues singer himself and was looking for a gig the owner pushed him on stage and the band and the audience were blown away that he could sing the way he did well they call me doc i can make you feel so good Now, the film liked to play up a lot to the fact that no one was expecting a white, disabled, teenage Jewish singer was going to sound like an African-American blues singer, but he sang in the best Big Joe Turner tradition and then went and changed his name to Doc Pomus. He recorded something like 50 sides under the name of Doc Pomus as a singer, but never really broke it big. However, music seemed to be the one thing that he knew could save him. Uh, He turned full-time to songwriting and got a job working as a staff songwriter for Atlantic Records and he ended up writing for Big Joe Turner, Benny King, 
Ray Charles, The Drifters, uh, Laverne Baker, and absolutely a ton of other people. Uh, the film goes through plenty of stories about his marriage, the people who he wrote for, his high intelligence, which quite a few women in the film said was what they found particularly attractive about it. Uh, his generosity. In one point of the film, they explained how he established a blues foundation to get money owed to struggling blues singers. It explains a lot about his songwriting partnerships. It's really just such a marvellous film with a ton of wonderful anecdotes. They tell the story about how Elvis Presley woke Doc Thomas up at 3am to discuss a lyric he didn't quite understand. Bob Dylan himself asked for help when he had writer's block, I think maybe in the late 70s or the early 80s. And this is somewhat ironic because Bob Dylan had been one of that new guard of songwriter who was also a performer and really tended to make life a little bit difficult for those in the Brill building who were writing songs for other people. So it's somewhat ironic that the man who had possibly made life a little bit difficult for him as a working songwriter had come to him many years later saying, you're a genius, you're my hero, um, I need help. She wears lover shoes, dungarees, red checkered shirt if you please. She's my boogie, woogie, boogie, woogie, boogie, woogie country girl. But I mean what I mean, my boogie, woogie country girl. There's a lovely story in there about how B.B. King became overcome with emotion while recording a song, There Must Be a Better World Somewhere, but he nailed it in one take anyway. There's a funny story that's told by Doc Pomus's daughter, Sharon Felder. Uh, she described how she met John Lennon, I think in a supermarket or somewhere like that in New York. And she'd gone and approached him as you know, a hero to her. But when John Lennon discovered that she was Doc Pomus's daughter, he proceeded to sing Save the Last Dance for Me in the middle of the store, in public. And she just sort of backed out, very embarrassed. A really, really wonderful film, once again. One that I recommend that you should all search out and give a watch to. It's called AKA Doc Pomus. So now I want to actually talk a little bit about the tribute album that I came up with the idea for talking about on this show and indeed for doing this show as a series of discussions about tribute albums as a result of having watched that film. I'm really a huge fan of this album. I've had it for, I don't know, I think pretty much since it came out back in 1995. Just one little thing, I want to sort of talk a little bit about cover versions. I'm possibly playing semantics here, but in my mind, a cover version of a song is when someone does someone else's song that they originally meant for themselves. When a songwriter of the old school, like the Brill Building, puts tunes out there that are not necessarily meant for anyone in mind. It's like the songs are just waiting on a shelf without an arrangement and they're waiting to be used. If they're picked off the shelf by performers, do these songs fall under the realm of cover version? They'll definitely be a first recording but a reinterpretation that comes along later on may be based on what's on the paper rather than what was around from the original recorded version. I don't know. I mean, maybe I am playing semantics. If you have any thoughts on this, please submit a thought on the Facebook page or send me an email to rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Are songs written by Brill Building songwriters not necessarily targeted for any one person? Multiple versions, are they cover versions or are they just reinterpretations? Anyway, never mind. As to the album itself, we have an album that really, bar one song, all completely works for me. It's really magnificent. The two main reasons that I think that this album works are, one, Doc Pomus was a versatile songwriter 
who started with the blues then headed into soul and pop and he really did want to write songs with teenagers in mind once the 60s rolled along and he told that to his songwriting partner who was there with him for about 10 years called Mort Schumann and the songs on this album reflect all of those styles that he came to be known for. Some songs remain faithful to the famous versions and some others they tend to go way off on their interpretation so if you want some comfort food or you want some adventure then you're going to be satisfied by listening to this album. In a few minutes I'll discuss my favourite songs which tended to be the ones that went a long way from the famous versions that we know about them. The nice thing is that it looks like most, if not all, of these performers had actually been beneficiaries of Pomus, either you know through previous versions doing of his songs or through actual meetups. The film goes into some detail where I think in the early 80s he'd be you know, offering advice to any songwriters who out there. He he actually kept himself in the New York phone book. He lived on uh, the west side of Central Park, and his name was in the phone book. His phone number was in the phone book. I read somewhere that there was a quote where he said, "What? I'm too big to be in the phone book." So people would come to him. All sorts of famous songwriters would be on his doorstep, and they'd be hanging around for hours. And when he got really, really ill from lung cancer, he was in a bad, bad way. So lots of people came to visit him to make sure that he was okay, and just to basically bow at his feet. So by and large, the people on this album were direct beneficiaries of Doc Pomus, either through having visited him in his apartment, written songs with him, or just came to know him through this period of time. Really, a lot of wonderful stuff. Once again, I'm coming back to the film, and it's just really nice to see that these songs have a life in the voices and instrumentation of the people on this tribute album. It's going to be impossible for me to talk about every song on the album in detail. That's not really the purpose of this show. But I do want to highlight three songs in particular that I really, really love because they've sort of gone a little bit off the beaten path from the versions that we know. The song that opens the album is Los Lobos's version of a song that had been made famous by Ray Charles, Lonely Avenue. <laughs> Has got two windows, but the sunshine never comes through. You know, it's always dark and dreary. Since I broke up with you, baby, I live on a lonely avenue. My love wouldn't say I do, but I feel so sad and blue. You know, it's all because of you. This is really stripped back and raw with Cesar Rosas giving the vocals of a desperate man and David Hidalgo plays a really lo-fi, gut-bustingly, brilliantly played blues guitar. Not fancy, just enough to um, give it some real grunt. It's really, really dirty sounding in a way that he sort of later experimented with on a collaboration that he did with Mike Halby of Canned Heat. The grouping that they were there was called Hound Dog and it sort of reminds me a lot of what he was to do on that. Ray Charles originally sounded very, very blue but Los Lobos sounds dangerous and desperate on this take on the fantastic Lonely Avenue. A second song I want to talk about is Viva Las Vegas. 
this song it's reinterpreted on the album by Sean Colvin and it's a revelation the Elvis Presley version I have always hated it with a passion it's just a really horrible conga line embarrassment that does nothing for his legacy but I'll tell you I'll suffer that over the fucking awful ZZ Top version if you're a fan out there write me and tell me I'm off the track with that but I really really hate that one with a passion and the song itself the lyric it just celebrates something I hate and yet Sean Colvin's arrangement, using the very same lyrics that Elvis sang, turns it into something completely different. She's no gambler with dollars flowing out of her pocket and cocktails or cocaine being consumed. By the time she's singing this, her character has lost everything. She's barely got the shirt on her back as she's hitchhiking out of town. It's all dripping with sarcasm the way she sings it. And when she actually sings the line, Viva Las Vegas, that's a sound of despair, not of celebration. And it's beautiful and sad all at once. And I'd be interested, if you're listening out there, if you can think of any other songs that just by virtue of the musical interpretation, not changing lyrics, have had a different slant on what the original or more famous version of it is. Please write rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au or put something on the Facebook page. I'd really be interested to know if there are any other songs that do that the same way Sean Colvin's version of Viva Las Vegas does. And the third song I want to talk about is probably one that is quite well known to film fans outside the realm of this CD. Uh, And the song is This Magic Moment. So different and so new Was like any other Until I met you Now, when the Drifters, led by Benny King, originally sang this magic moment, there's a dizziness in the opening with the way the violins play. Those violins to me emphasize the magic moment where new love between two people takes hold. It's romantic and it's true in the realm of the Drifters version of this song. Benny King's voice was so perfect. 
and there's some gorgeous harmonies out of the drifter that conveyed the emotion so well it's absolutely dreamy by contrast there's the lou reed non-orchestration arrangement and it sounds like a nightmare it's not a dream now it's been 20 years since i last saw the film lost highway made by david lynch but i know it was used in the second half of the film when the character played by patricia arquette is a femme fatale is first seen at a garage uh, in a car repair place and who knows better than david lynch what the sound of a nightmare is and it's lou reed singing this magic moment this is not the dream of benny king and the drifters reed's version is played on a finger-picked guitar with bursts of distortion coming in at the start of new lines combining that with reed's non-voice or at least compared to benny king you have something that's genuinely frightening as i mentioned earlier lou reed actually came to know doc pomas uh, late in life and we see him in moments in the film yakking with doc and other songwriters who really get together and i mean if you've heard any other interviews with lou reed or read anything he's always come across as a really grumpy sort of guy but he's positively delighted being in the presence of Doc Pomus and these other songwriters just discussing Doc's legacy. And it seems strange to me that the man who was a part of the Velvet Underground and the man who put out those great albums like Transformers was a fan of a songwriter like Doc Pomus, but he knew his greatness and uh, you know, full credit to him for that. Just coming back to his version of this magic moment, the end of this version very nicely includes him improvising sort of on a line uh, of uh, come dance with me before closing the song off with save the last dance for me and so there you go Lou Reed sort of gives two tributes for the price of one to Doc Pomus just really really marvellous version there aren't any other songs on the album that have radically different arrangements but apart from Brian Wilson doing Sweets for My Sweet which was a song I really never cared for every version or every song on this album really hits its mark. We get Irma Thomas uh, sort of gospelizing a little bit more on B.B. King's There Must Be a Better World Somewhere. really owns it. B.B. King himself actually appears on the album and does a song called Blinded by Love, uh, a song that Dr. John actually wrote with Doc Pomus. in a big band arrangement by a singer called Johnny Adams. For my money, the B.B. King version just absolutely slays it as we hear his voice and his guitar, Lucille, just absolutely wail over this song and it just 
rips out your heart. Absolutely gorgeous. The 90s revival version of the band, minus Robbie Robertson, uh, has a lot of fun doing a version of the song Youngblood. But for that matter, Bob Dylan sounds like he's having a ton of fun doing his version of the song Boogie Woogie Country Girl. The album also features you know, great singers like John Hyatt, King Solomon Burke, and Roseanne Cash, amongst many others, all for me, I think, bringing their A-game. But if you can find this CD secondhand, or even new, if it's still being pressed, or on iTunes, just buy it. When the CD originally came out, a portion of the money went to Doc Pomas's Rhythm and Blues Foundation, which was established to help out blues musicians who given it all decades before, but were left penniless by managers or record companies. So just another thing that endeared Doc Pomas to other musicians, not just the songwriters who worshipped in his wake as to uh, his ability with a lyric or a melody. A very, very worthy foundation. So I'm guessing that that's still in existence nowadays. So if you can find a way to buy this on CD or on iTunes, just go for it. Great music and you'd be helping a great cause as well. All right, well, that concludes my uh, thoughts for the first album of this show. We'll go straight to Eric Reanimated doing his album I Love segment, and then we'll be back straight after that, and I'll be talking about the American tribute album to Richard Thompson called Beat the Retreat. You'll listen to episode 108 of Love That Album Podcast. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. A one, two, a one, two, three, four. Now it's time for An Album I Love with Eric Reanimator. And welcome to 2018. This is Eric Reanimator, back for another year of Love That Album. This time around, Morris informed me he was going to be talking about some tribute records, and I had a stack of them I have yet to get to in my Compilation Edition episodes. So I figured I'd talk about a couple of random ones that I had laying around. Now, I'm going to be very honest and say, I've listened to most of these, but not really in depth. This is more of a, this is some of the weird stuff that's out there. What we're listening to right now is the 1996 compilation called Never Say Dinosaur. You would be forgiven for not knowing this album because this is coming out of a world that most of us don't spend a lot of time looking at or talking about or probably even thinking of, and that would be the Christian rock world of the 1990s. Now the band I'm playing is the Galactic Cowboys, which is a longtime favorite band of mine. They're the sole reason I bought this album when it came out. I recently did find another copy at a thrift store, and I was happy to have a second. 
This comes from a time when bands like Sixpence, Sixpence, None the Richer, and MXPX and Jars of Clay were having a certain amount of success in the mainstream. So the band that's being paid tribute to here is a band called Petra, which is one of the big Christian rock bands of the 1970s and 80s. I was never a really big fan of Petra. They had some cool cover art, but a lot of that really religiously focused music, it doesn't matter if we're talking about Christianity or Islam or Krishna or any of those. I don't need you preaching at me, bottom line. But a lot of those were, what's the right word? Um, They put the message before the music, and that can become annoying if that's not your thing. At any rate, let's check out some of the tunes on this tribute. So starting off there, as I mentioned, we had the Galactic Cowboys with Not of This World. 
followed by MXPX with Can I Be Friends With You, and then uh, a band called Plank Eye with All the King's Horses, and finally this is Sixpence None the Richer with Road Design. I think that breadth of sounds gives a good idea of at least the songwriting chops that Petra had at their best. Now, if you know Petra, it's because in 1977 they covered a song called God Gave Rock and Roll to You by the band Argent, which was later on covered by Kiss for the film Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. I don't really have a lot to say about the band or this compilation other than it's an interesting derivation from what Love That Album tends to cover, and it's a whole other world of music out there that sometimes gets ignored for valid reasons and sometimes not. So, anyway, I'm going to do one more tribute because that's how we're going to roll this month, and we'll do a little bit more, Six Punts, None the Richer, and then we'll come back with our next tribute album. we're back with our second tribute album this one is called more or a tribute to skip spence skip spence was a member of the band moby grape and this is a cover of his album from 1969 entitled or was produced by a gentleman who had previously made the rocky erickson where the pyramid meets the eye tribute which is a record that i've had and i've owned and i might have now but i'm not going to be bothered to go take a look that I did not love but still had some interesting tracks on it. The reason I picked this up is because I heard a lot about Spence and a lot about Moby Grape but the track listing or the artists on this album so let me get you some of the highlights here Robert Plant Mark Lanigan, Alejandro Escovedo Mudhoney who we're listening to now Tom Waits, Greg Dooley and back. So, yeah, that's a who's who of 90s alternative and underground rock and pop. Now, once again, this is not an album that I've listened to enough to really have a lot to say about it. Or that's not true. I've listened to it multiple times. It just hasn't stuck with me, but I hold on to it, mainly because of the talent involved. So let's hear their take on some of these songs. Tears fall like rain 
So after Mud Honey, we heard a little bit of Alejandro Escovedo, and this, of course, the one and only Tom Waits. Sometimes I pick up these things because I see them cheap, which was the case with this one, and I look at the track listing and I think, oh, you know, I want to hear what Mark Lanigan is going to do, and I want to hear what Tom Waits is going to do with somebody else's material, and maybe there'll be something else on here that's cool. That's why I pick this one up. That's why I pick up a whole bunch of these. Especially now as we're living in a day and an age where, wow, man, I'm finding CDs for 50 cents, a dollar, two dollars, pretty pretty regularly, and a lot of interesting stuff. I also do end up talking about these compilation tribute albums pretty regularly on the compilation edition of Love That Album. So if it's something that you're into, go on and check that out. So I'm going to leave with what I kind of expect is what a lot of people are going to want to hear. Some of the Mark Lanigan track. Check it out, and we'll catch you all next time. On a pedal path did he left his wheelchair spinning deeper in the mud. And it set his memories, its body and his blood. The night before rock and roll pioneer, Jerry Lee Lewis's fifth wife died. She made a phone call to her mom. She told her that she was thinking of leaving Jerry Lee, but that he wouldn't let her. Then, she made a second call. This one, to the sister of her high school sweetheart, making plans for her to come take her away from Jerry Lee later that month. Then, in mid-sentence, the phone went dead. The next day, Mrs. Jerry Lee Lewis was found dead, neatly placed on top of a made bed in the newlywed couple's guest room. Despite the bruises on her body, the blood under her fingernails, the scratches on her husband's hands, and the mountain of other physical and anecdotal evidence, the death was ruled an accident. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Disgraceland is the world's first and only rock and roll true crime podcast. I want to tell you the story surrounding the death of Mrs. Jerry Lee Lewis. 
And there's some other stories I'd like to tell you about, too. Stories about Sid Vicious, Sam Cooke, Mayhem, Beck, TLC's Lisa Left Eye Lopez, and more. Why? Because rock stars, real rock stars, get in a lot of trouble and sometimes commit horrible crimes. Disgraceland, a rock and roll true crime podcast, will explore these stories and others when we launch on February 13, 2018. You can subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are available. Rock and roll up. Episode 108 of Love That Album Podcast. My thanks once again to Eric Reanimator for his album I Love segment. And I never thought that Christian rock would be a genre that would ever be covered on this show, but there you go. Eric has an open mind. So the second half of the show, I'm going to be speaking about a tribute album to Richard Thompson. The name of the album is called Beat the Retreat. Now, if you've listened long enough to the show, you'll know that I'm a massive fan of Richard Thompson. If you're new to the program, here's a secret. I'm a massive fan of Richard Thompson. We've covered three albums on previous episodes, and by rights, he's reached my undocumented policy of three times and no more. But as this is a tribute album discussion, maybe it doesn't quite break that rule. Anyway, my show, I can do what I want. I've probably mentioned this in one of those previous episodes, but I first heard Richard's music back, I think, in 1993 when a three-city box set was released called Watching the Dark. It covered music from all through his career, from Fairport Convention days through to his then current Capitol Records recordings. I'd heard of him, but hadn't really sought his music out. I sort of became aware of his name through a local radio program, but the first time I actually went to listen to his music was when I walked into a shop that is no longer in existence, unfortunately, called Discurios. They had a copy of Watching the Dark, and I just asked to have a bit of a listen. So the first cut that they played for me on the CD system in the store was a song called Al Bowley's in Heaven. We were heroes then girls were all pretty And a uniform Was a lucky charm It bought you the key To the city We used to dance The whole night through While Al Bowley sang The very thought of you Alpole is in heaven And I'm in limbo now 
and it was a live version. In the five minutes or so that this song came to reveal itself to me, I knew I was going to be a big fan of Richards for life. First and foremost, he had a way with telling a story. In this case, a World War II returned veteran who was honoured and respected during the war, but couldn't get a meal or a roof over his head when the war was finished. The melody to me was so memorable and haunting, and the lyric was written like the best literature. I just got suckered into this first-person told story. I sat in the store listening to song after song for about 45 minutes and then just bought the whole damn thing. The truth is that every Richard Thompson fan out there will have a similar story of hearing their first song by him and being completely smitten. The songwriting has always been clever in a very lyrical sort of way, but never at the expense of making you feel emotional or think about what he's trying to get across. He's the guitarist's guitarist on both acoustic and electric, and he has that honeyed vocal style, not in a conventional singer sort of way, but one who I've always felt sings very warmly and honestly, bitterly, or with some sort of level of humour. It's not a voice that attracts everyone, but it's something that I've always been a big fan of. Now, Beat the Retreat is not the only tribute album to Richard Thompson. The very same year that it came out on Capitol Records, an album called The World is a Wonderful Place was released by a small label out of Nashville called Green Linnet. Pharaoh, he sits in his tower of steel, the dogs of money are at his heel. Magicians cry, oh truth, oh real, we're all working for the Pharaoh. thousand dies a thousand years, he feeds us all, he feeds our fears. Don't stir in your sleep tonight. My dears, we're all working for the Pharaoh And it's Egypt land, Egypt land We're all living in Egypt land Tell me, brother, don't you understand We're all working for the Pharaoh uh, I always presumed that it was a British label, but it turns out that it was run by Americans with a passion for Celtic music. I find it fascinating that a cult artist like Richard Thompson not only originated two tribute albums at the same time, but both of those albums were released on American record labels. And for someone whose music is very, very British, it's always sounded very British to me. Maybe not quite the same way that someone like uh, Ray Davies writes, but both definitely reveal their Britishness to me in the way their songs come out. The big difference between the two albums, though, is that The World is a Wonderful Place has mostly UK artists who are doing very Celtic or UK-flavoured interpretations of Richard's music. Talking about artists like uh, Christine Collister, Tom Robinson, Martin Simpson, and a few Americans who are doing Celtic-style interpretations. Beat the Retreat has more American performers doing distinctly Americana or rock-flavoured covers of uh, Richard's songs, but there are a few Brits on there as well. In the end, it all comes down to your personal taste. I really can't say that there's anything on either of these albums that stands out as not working at all. I remember at the time that there were some critics who went and said that they preferred the world as a wonderful place, and they were more, I guess, the Richard Thompson purists. But for me, the diversity and for the artists actually featured... I'd probably go for Beat the Retreat, and hence that's the album I want to talk about and bring to your attention. Just as an aside, there's a song that's not on this album. It wasn't recorded specifically for it, but it was covered a few years before this album was recorded by Joel Sonnier, who's actually known as the Ragin' Cajun. He did a cover, I think it was on David Sanborn's program, Night Music, and he might have actually gone and put it on one of his own solo albums. Uh, he did a cover of Tear Stained Letter. 
this was very much in the Louisiana Cajun style, showing that either Richard Thompson was very adaptable as a songwriter to his country of residence, which he certainly is, or his music is highly adaptable to individual musicians' choice of what it is that they want to do. Either way, that's one song I certainly urge you to go search out. I might actually go and put up the film clip of him performing it with David Sanborn and Richard Thompson himself on uh, the Night Music program. It's definitely worth your while watching. So as to Beat the Retreat, the album itself, we have a mix of things, including Cajun, punk, rock, pop, country, and yes, even a little bit of British folk, because that's obviously where Richard's origins are. Now, an album like this, because of its stylistic differences, can run the risk of not sounding like a cohesive body of work, and you know your mileage may vary with that opinion. A record, though, that opens with an oral assault, like X's version of Shoot Out the Lights, and concludes with the whisper of the great Maddie Pryor and Martin Carthy doing their version of the great Valerio, shows that pretty much anything goes here, as opposed to this being a compilation from various sources, having the same producer across the one album doesn't hurt, to giving some level of consistency of sound while being able to have a variation in musical temperament. The producer of the album was a fellow called John Chalu, who I've gone and spoken about a little bit on the program before. Uh, he'd gone and been the producer of, well, an album that up until recently we couldn't name, John Hyatt's Bring the Family. But as well as John Hyatt, he'd also been a producer for the Blind Boys of Alabama, Martin Carthy himself, and Bert Yanch, and my beloved Las Lobos. He's been a band booker at a famous guitar shop, McCabe's, in Los Angeles, which I'm guessing is where he knew Richard Thompson from via his wife, Nancy Covey, who had also worked as a band booker. The album, or perhaps the production style itself, is it's bright and vibrant, and this works out for both the full-on band cuts or the even quieter, more acoustic moments as well. Once again, I'll nominate my three top songs for the album and a couple of other honourable mentions to give you an idea as to why I really, really love this record. I'm often telling people that if they want to shake the foundations of their house, they need to put the amp up to 11 on the opening cut of this album, where the LA Band X, as opposed to the Sydney Band X, tear it up with their version of Shoot Out the Lights. album Richard and Linda Thompson recorded together. The original version is a gritty song, but in the hands of X, it's absolutely ferocious. I remember reading a newspaper review when this song was the one that they said was the weak link on the album. I'm not quite sure what it was that they were sniffing, but they are wrong with a capital W, capital R, and little 
O-N-G. Billy Zoon, the guitar player for X, hadn't been in the band for a number of years, but his replacement was Tony Gilkerson of Lone Justice fame and the amazing David Hidalgo of Los Lobos also plays on this cut. They play left and right channels respectively to create this wall of sound that is absolutely vicious. It could be argued that it's a little bit polished as per Chelu's production, but I don't think it is too much. John Doe and Exine Sabenka harmonize together on a song that you wouldn't actually think needs harmonizing on, but no one quite sounds like the two of them together, so it works with their level of intensity. DJ Bonebreak plays the drums slowly, but really brings the intensity and the thunder, and is also something of a house drummer for a number of the songs on the album. For a song that really looms large in the Richard Thompson canon, this is possibly the most un-Richard Thompson-like sounding song on the album, yet I'd be 100% confident that he's a big fan of this version. Give it a listen, see what you think. from a singer-songwriter, Graham Parker, who I think has been unfairly forgotten about in terms of the British punky pop and new wave scene of the late 70s. A lot of focus has been placed on Joe Jackson and Elvis Costello from the same period, but for some reason, Graham Parker and The Rumour don't appear to be recalled as much by wider music circles as those first two do. Graham Parker's song on this album is The Madness of Love. Now, in 1985, the official Richard Thompson newsletter was a thing called Flypaper, and it put out a fan club member-only cassette called Doom and Gloom from the Tomb, featuring a lot of Richard and Linda Thompson live cuts and demos and alternate versions of songs. During the CD bootleg trading days in the 90s, I was thrilled to be able to grab myself a copy of this long out-of-print release. And in a way, I'm surprised that Richard doesn't make this album officially available again nowadays. I don't know, maybe he's got some level of sound standard or something like that. It might have just been something that he allowed the fan club to put out as long as it didn't get a wider release hence the only thing that it came out on was cassette. One of the songs on the cassette, well actually I should say cassettes because there were two volumes of this Doom and Gloom collection, was The Madness of Love. Now this was written along with some other songs from a period where Richard and Linda were just discovering the Sufi faith and they spent like I think about three years living in a commune in London and the songs written during this period resulted in an album called First Light. There were other songs of faith on a couple of the other albums that he put out about that time, but there were some songs that he never recorded officially or at least released officially. One of those songs was The Madness of Love, which did make it, though, to this Doom and Gloom from the Tomb collection, and Richard has been quoted, apparently, as saying that some of these tunes deserve to fall off the radar. 
Uh, look, I'll be honest that I was never really that taken with Richard and Linda's original version on the Doom and Gloom collection, but fortunately, Graham Parker saw something in it that idiots like me didn't really do, and he saw it for the great song that it is, and he's brought something of his sneering, punky vocal style to it. His version is a far more straight-ahead driving song than the original, and it's powered by some wonderful acoustic guitar muscle. That's an expression I like to use a lot as well. Hello, Ben Eisen, if you're listening. As well as the acoustic guitar, there's also the Hammond B3 organ. That's a great combination for me. The rhythm section features mid-period Joe Jackson drumming Gary Burke and the bass player who's been with Joe forever Graham maybe and they're keeping the sound rolling forward and uncomplicated I've always loved this take on the song the lyric which sort of sounds like a biblical apocalypse to me just sounds better coming out of Graham Parker's mouth and band in this instance is a much better arrangement than Richard and that's something rare to me because you know often the songwriter is the one who knows what's best for his song but there's something here that Graham Parker really discovered with how the song needed to be presented and it's as I said just a simple arrangement but in this case simplicity completely works not that the Richard and Linda version was that overly complex but it wasn't as straightforward as this one is. But the instrumentation, something about the punky vocal approach, it just completely works for me. So I hope that you dig this version too. The final song I want to mention is an unusual choice to single out. It's A Heart Needs a Home, covered on this album by Sean Colvin and Loudon Wainwright III. I know the That I feel about you I'm never gonna run away Never gonna run away It's possibly unusual to single out because arrangement-wise, it's not that different from the very, very perfect original. Richard Thompson fingerpicks, Loudon Wainwright and Sean Colvin strum. Richard plays it in the key of C major, and Loudon and Sean play it in G major. These are really superficial differences, but there are plenty of other great songs in the album that bring different touches to the original. So why would I be picking this? I chose this because it's a song that, more than anything else, appeals to me because of its vulnerability. For a song that on the surface sounds like it's one person committing to another, the other side of the coin is that the singer is frightened in a world that makes no sense and has no stability. And that's really something that we can all identify with nowadays. This is Sean Colvin's second appearance on this show. She's no Linda Thompson, and smartly she doesn't try to be. She doesn't quite sound vulnerable in her vocal delivery, but to my ears, she definitely pulls off the world weariness that this song requires. Loudon Wainwright, to me, has always been the musical equivalent of a comedic actor who knows how to pull off drama. I mean, I don't know, could you compare Loudon Wainwright to someone like Robin Williams? Not sure. Uh, He's written some hugely funny and admittedly very cruel songs. I would not want to be any of his children, but then again, I guess Martha Wainwright has never been too shy about writing songs about her father in retaliation, some that I can't mention on this family-friendly program. Loudon Wainwright also does melancholy or sad 
very, very well. Richard is a longtime friend, and I actually remember seeing them together as a double header show here in Melbourne many years ago. So, given their common history, there was no way that Ladden Wainwright was going to do a disservice to this song. He and Sean Colvin sing solo parts as well as harmonize on the chorus, and to me, it's a masterclass in how to do a duet. Sometimes, if the original is perfect, there's no need to change that. They just sing it for the chance to do so and pay tribute to it, and really is three minutes of absolutely gorgeous perfection. As I said earlier on in the show, the amazing thing about this album is the range of people who stand up to say that they are fans of Richard Thompson. I love that it opens up with a punk band like X and closes with the quietness of Martin Carthy and Maddie Pryor, who was originally the singer in Steel I Span. In between, you have R.E.M. doing a countrified version of Wall of Death, which is probably the most positive and optimistic song Richard Thompson has ever written. You have uh, a band Beausole, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly. They're doing a Cajun take on the fantastic song Valerie. Bob Mould of Huskadu and Sugar is doing his high-energy take on the song Turning of the Tide, which was always a little bit more laid back in Richard's hands, but... You know, both are great, and I love hearing what Bob Mould does with it. The other song I just want to make quick mention of is The Perfect Gospel of the Five Blind Boys of Alabama doing their take on the song Dimming of the Day. This old house is falling down Round my ears Oh, I'm drowning in a When all my will is gone, you hear me pray. I need you at the dimming of the day. Another perfect song in uh, Richard's hands. Just one of my absolute favorites. One songwriter here means many things to many different musicians, all from different worlds. They might never have ended up on the same album if not for their common love of this great songwriter. To me, that's absolutely the highest praise that one musician could take away. That's part of Richard Thompson's legacy. It's better than any Grammy award. And if you can track down a copy of this album, I wholeheartedly recommend it. First, go through the Richard Thompson back catalogue if you're not familiar with his own material. But once you've done that and you want something a little bit more, this is really a terrific take on a lot of his older material. Here we are in 2018, and this album has been out, well, yeah, 23, 24 years. So I think it's about time that maybe we had yet a new tribute to Richard because he's continued to make fantastic albums in that interim. I can't recall maybe about another seven albums or so since that tribute album came out, maybe even more. So there's a whole world of songs that haven't been touched. So I think maybe it's about time that his fans, his musical fans, got up, were counted, and did an album in tribute to him. Okay, we're going to take one final break, and then I'll be back in a moment to talk to you about what's going to be on episode 109 of Love That Album Podcast. High up above the clouds, the great Valerio is walking, the road. 
Hi, this is Dolph Lundgren. Hi, I'm Lance Henriksen. Hi, this is Keith Gordon. Robert Pune. Miguel Ferrer. Nancy Allen. Robert Davi. Richard Elfman. Ileana Douglas. Patrick Warburton. Dwingshauser. Cliff DeYoung. Steve Railsback. Mr. D. William Cass. If you haven't been listening to the Projection Booth podcast, you're missing out. Each week, the Projection Booth brings you in-depth discussions of some of the most interesting movies ever made. I'm Mike White. No, the other one. I'm the guy who wrote the film fanzine Cashiers to Cinemart since 1994. Since Eric 2011, I've been co-hosting the Projection Booth podcast. Try us, won't you? I never try anything. I just do it. Visit the Projection Booth at projection-booth.com. So next month will be episode 109 of Love That Album podcast, and I've invited back onto the show someone who hasn't been on in quite a while, and that's Shannon Hurley, aka Numbers Girl from the all-time top 10 podcast, normally hosted by Ben Eisen. And I asked Shannon what it was that she'd like to discuss on the show, and she said something from the New Wave era. Now, I've always had a bit of a problem with the description of the term New Wave, because it doesn't really tell you anything about what sort of music you're getting, and all the bands that fell under that New Wave banner really sounded very different. There wasn't really much of a stylistic connection. But I thought, well, semantics aside, all right, what would be a good album to cover from that period? And we've agreed on the Police's final album, Synchronicity. So we'll have a lot to talk about that. I'm sure we'll be uh, speaking about what went on throughout the policeman's career and what Sting eventually sort of decided to turn his hand to and how he's a walking publicity machine. But mostly we'll be discussing about the album Synchronicity and probably some stuff from the earlier Police album. So I look forward to discussing that with her and presenting the show to you sometime in February of 2018, probably in the last week or so. Until then... Listen to some great music, watch some great films. Please tune into the other podcast I'm associated with called See Here. That's S W H E A R. And please listen to any of the other podcasts that I frequently like to rabbit on about and play their promos on this show. They're all good friends of the show and they all make fantastic listening. So until February 2018, be nice to each other and we'll speak to you then. All the best. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.